I, I've got I've got a full cup of coffee, so I'm ready to go. I'm jacked. I'm juiced. I'm I'm caffeinated. <laughs> Let's do it. Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Jason, and you'll hear from our co-host, Rutger, very, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. Any opinions or views expressed by our guests or the co-hosts on this podcast are his or hers alone and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company he or she works for. To preserve a tone of earnest dialogue and protect our guests, we will refrain from using names of any kind, personal, company, or otherwise, unless our guests have granted us explicit permission to do so. Now, Music Charts, we try to showcase those who are at the burning edge of music and data, and that is a mission with Global Reach. Bernie Cho is a music executive with over 21 years of culture creation in the Asian music, television, and pop culture industries. As president of DFSB Collective, that's Collective with a K, a soul-based independent artist and label services agency that specializes in providing digital media, marketing, and distribution solutions to over 600 Korean pop music artists, DFSB collaborates with artists and their management to devise customized strategies that directly connect them to their local and global fans. A true executive all-rounder, Bernie served as the head of MTV Korea's digital media production team and worked for nearly two decades in the Korean music and TV industries as a creative planner, program producer, and show host. The Bernie has no relation to Chartmetric CEO Sung Cho, Bernie is an advisor for several U.S. and Korean music tech startups, which happens to include Chartmetric. We've split this talk into two episodes for easier listening. So without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Bernie Cho. Hi, Bernie. How's it going? Good, Jason. Long time no see. Thanks for coming on the show. So I wanted to set the scene a little bit for uh, the listeners. So, you know, we're data nerds. You know, let's talk a few numbers first for those who are maybe of the uninitiated. And so last year, 2019, Korean music pulled in $578 million USD for Korea. Korea was the sixth market ranked in the AFPI's latest global music report, while it's the 28th most populous country in the world at 51 million people. And then when it comes to the Western world, like we're most familiar with, of course, BTS and Blackpink, BTS as of late. Pulled in $18 million for a Bang Bang Con, the live show. And then Blackpink combined 122 million Instagram followers out of the four members. They're the top four K-pop idols on platform on the platform, period, on Instagram. And that's more than Nicki Minaj, Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, almost two times Billie Eilish, just to put things in perspective. Blackpink's uh, last dance performance video, How You Like That, which was only put out barely over a month ago, 193 million views on YouTube. And their top video overall is 1.27 billion views and that was uh, from two years ago. So they're, they're in the Billion View Club on YouTube. But Bernie, I wanted to start this off with a business industry question. So this is in reference to a Music Ally piece back in June of this year. And you talked about the, quote, fully integrated, full stack business model, end quote, in the Korean entertainment industry structure. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and maybe compare it to what we're used to in the Western music industry? The idea of a full stack business model in the K-pop music industry, I know when I put that out there, it kind of threw a lot of people off as to what is it. Um, and I think in order to kind of get a better understanding of what that concept is, uh, it's I think it's good to time, take a step back and kind of understand sort of um, the business model of, of K-pop. Um, one of the pioneers, uh, really the godfather, the grandfather of uh, the K-pop Korean wave export boom, is a, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Lee Soo-man, 
Chairman Lee, also known as the SM of SM Entertainment. And being the biggest and longest running K-pop um, management company, uh, it's one of the hottest stocks on the Korean Stock Exchange. I mean, this is a company that pulls in over half a billion dollars a year in revenues. In fact, it makes more money than a lot of the record labels that we grew up with and loved. Um, these guys are, are, are hitting it and hitting it big. But one of the things um, he was asked years ago in terms of what is the underlying philosophy of his K-pop business success is um, he used a phrase that got a lot of people's attention. He used the phrase cultural technology. Cultural technology. Could you unpack that phrase for us a little bit? That seems a bit oxymoronic because when you think of culture, you think of something warm and fuzzy and close to your heart and technology you think of not as being cool, but a little bit cold, a little bit on the number crunching side. Um, but in Korea, that makes a lot of sense because digital culture, youth culture, and pop culture are essentially one and the same. Um, there's this sort of hyper-connected centrifuge of these disparate influences that really have made um, the Korean wave surge, not just across Asia, but more importantly, beyond Asia. And for those of you who are tech heads who know a lot about um, sort of how new media and technology works. Uh, the most desired person that you want to hire in a tech company is the full stack engineer, the full stack developer. And what that means is somebody who knows all the different parts of the development chain from concept to completion, someone who knows a little bit of everything and is good at all of it. And they're one-stop shop, you know, total package. And the full stack business model that we talk about in tech carries over into the K-pop culture, the K-pop business culture, because these Korean music companies, and I have to use the word company deliberately because they wear many hats. They're a music label, they're a talent management company, and they're essentially a talent agency as well. So these are three different disciplines in the Western music markets. You have, you know, big time talent agencies like CAA, William Morris Endeavor, UTA Paradigm, etc. And then you have major music labels like Sony, Universal, and Warner. And then you have, you know, big time management companies, you know, from Scooter Brown to Troy Carter to whoever. These are all three different specialties. So then what would you say is that a uh, special sauce? In Korea, really out of not just, um, you know, in Korea out of really um, market necessity, uh, these Korean music companies um, evolved into becoming these hybrid music companies that are part talent agency, part talent management, and part record label. And as a result, um, because of the efficiencies in being full stack across the board, their ability to not only discover but develop new music acts from, you know, uh, audition shows to selling out arena shows is, is really second to none. And we're starting to see that kind of full stack business model replicate itself in other parts of Asia, whether it be in, in China or, or in Taiwan or, or in India. And in some ways, in many ways, a lot of people feel that the full stack business model that these cultural technology enterprises that we call K-pop music companies 
is something that um, is worth uh, studying because it's highly efficient, it's highly effective, and you show the numbers, the results speak for itself. I found it really interesting because I think I, I think I've read about uh, Chairman Lee before. I think he used to be an engineer. It's his background professionally. Um, right? Well, he actually was a very smart guy. He went to one of the best universities in Korea, but he was, you know, a singer-songwriter at heart and, um, you know, pushed aside his fancy diploma to become an artist, a singer-songwriter, and he became successful as an artist. And it turns out that it's not just SM Entertainment, but if you look at the biggest Korean music companies, all of the CEOs are former artists turned entrepreneurs. So the namesake of JYP is Jin Young Park of JYP Entertainment. Guess what? Singer, songwriter, producer, entrepreneur. Uh, YG, Yang Hyung Suk of YG Entertainment. It happens to be a artist, producer, entrepreneur. And Big Hit Entertainment, although Big Hit is not the initials of um, Bang Shiok, his nickname was Hitman Bang, and he too used to be a very prolific hit-making, hit-writing producer turned CEO. And so I think the experience of these particular successful businessmen is largely rooted in their experience as artists. And so they've managed to find a way to um, convey their creative vision into um, a commercial success. This tradition of artist turned entrepreneur, is this exclusive or unique to Korea? I think one of the um, interesting things is that, you know, as much as I kind of are as I'm raving about the full stack business model, it's not exclusive and it's not unique to Korea. We see variations of it, not in the United States, because I think part of it has to do with the fact that um, those different areas are very specialized management agencies and labels. But more importantly, it could be due to regulatory reasons um, that, you know, um, agents are not supposed to necessarily manage or not supposed to necessarily be labels per se. But um, whether it's tradition or whether it's lines drawn in the sand, I don't know. But what is true is, is that this type of full stack model versions of it have done very well in Europe um, and especially in Latin America. So, for instance, when you talk about universal music and you look at some of their very successful Latin labels like um, After Clove or... Um, they have a, an entity called GTS, Global Talent Services, I think, in Mexico. Um, these are full-service, full-stack business models. They are the label, for instance. They're obviously associated with universal music, but they also do talent management and booking services. And so, for instance, in Latin America, Universal is usually considered one of the go-to booking agencies for artists, Latin artists. Is there anything like this in the States? I think he's the closest I think you might see this model in the U.S. is perhaps maybe Rock Nation or um, Ultra. This is a definitely a very common, very prevalent business model in Asia. So what are the more interesting trends happening right now with Korean hybrid music companies? What makes things even more um, interesting is the fact that now these hybrid music companies have stakes, have ownership, have investments in DSPs. So they actually have, you know, uh, uh, skins in the game when it comes to digital music services. So, for instance, SM Entertainment is the number two shareholder in one of the top new DSPs in Korea called Flow. Um, YG Entertainment, their second largest investor, is a tech portal company called Naver that also has a music service called Vibe. 
um, and uh, JYP and Big Head Entertainment have strategic partnerships with DSPs. So um, lines are getting very blurry. And you, again, you see this in China and you definitely see this in India as well, where um, DSPs stand for something completely different. So for those who might not know, DSPs usually in the West, at least, stands for digital streaming provider or digital service provider, something you know where it's just providing music in a streaming download or kind of mobile format. Something like uh, Apple Music or Spotify, Deezer, Amazon Music uh, of those flavors. So how is it different in Korea? Uh, they're premium DSPs. They are diverse services providers. They're not only the content platform providing streaming and downloading and mobile music. They're also content producers by virtue of investing in artists directly, managing companies or investing in record labels. In Asia, I think one of the reasons why music companies evolved into hybrid full stack full service music companies was the fact that um, many of the major labels early on and really up until recently were more concerned and interested on having Western acts succeed in Asia, the idea of Asian acts succeeding in the West was really not um, on their agenda, not on their radar, and really not on the roadmap. Uh, major international record labels really have no right or reason to call themselves majors because their market share are tiny and small relative to what their market shares are in, say, Europe or North America or Latin America. So how small are we talking about when we're looking at major label market shares? For instance, the top four indie music markets in the world all happen to be in Asia. Korea being number one at um, you know 85 to 88% indie. China, depending on the statistics you look at, is probably in that 70 to 75% indie. And Japan and India are all in that 60 to 65%, which is another way of saying that the majors, Sony, Universal, and Warner combined, are anywhere between maybe 15 to 30 percent in those, those top four Asian music markets. Whereas in the West, in the US, in UK or Europe, uh, any one of those labels, be it Universal or Warner or Sony, on their own will make up about 30 percent market share. So if not for them, who would artists look to lean on for this particular region? Uh, and then, of course, management companies. I mean, they were often the go-to for discovery and development of music artists. And so it really was just um, born out of not just need but necessity um, because they didn't have the option or, for that matter, the luxury of leaning on a global international export-focused music label. Uh, they didn't have the option or luxury of leaning on talent agencies who could help them book shows and festivals around the world and so these korean music management companies evolved into becoming the record label and becoming the talent agency all wrapped up and bundled into one and one of the benefits one of the advantages um, of having this full stack model is um, efficiency through a lot of trial and error and probably a little bit more misses than hits uh, they have figured out a way and finessed a formula that works in terms of the discovery process, the development process, taking these new stars and making them into superstars, not just locally, regionally, but more importantly, now more than ever globally. So what makes this K-pop full stack business model so interesting or so innovative for people? One of the interesting things about the full stack business model is the music is actually not the business. 
for a lot of the Korean music companies here, recorded music sales is only actually 25%, one quarter of their total revenue. So it begs the question, where do they make the other 75% of their ka-ching? One third is from live music. About 20% is from merchandising and licensing. And another 20% is roughly from talent management. So music is not the business. If anything, it's a business card that leads to these other opportunities, be it in the live space, the merch space, or in the management space. Where's this data coming from? The reason we know these numbers, I know these numbers, is that many of the top Korean music companies are actually publicly traded on the Korea Stock Exchange. So these numbers are public, they're transparent, and these top Korean music companies not only have to be accountable to fangirls, but also to financial analysts as well. And so I think this is one of the reasons why the K-pop music industry has sort of um, elevated the professionalism because... uh, investors want to know, are they going to get a return on their investments? And time and time again, these music companies, they have to deliver not just good looks or good moods or good vibes. They got to deliver great numbers. And I think this is one of the reasons why uh, the K-pop music industry is is the juggernaut that it is. Can you size the K-pop market? Something we've always been curious about. People want to know like how big the K-pop industry is. It's huge. And what I mean by that is if we look at the top four Korean music companies, SM Entertainment, Big Hit Entertainment, JYP Entertainment, and YG Entertainment, each of these companies make more money annually than the top urban music label in the U.S., the top Latin music label in the U.S. and the top country music label in the U.S. So they're bigger than these three genres leading labels. And to even put that into more context, these top four Korean music companies generate more revenues than the music markets of all the countries in Southeast Asia, South Asia, um, East Asia, with the exception of Japan and China. So the fact that individual companies generate more money than individual music markets uh, speaks volumes. Uh, That's a mic drop right there. And that's a great segue because Korea's always had this export mentality. Its eyes are always looking outwards. It also reminds me of kind of the Nordic region as well, another kind of region of the world that has a great music tradition and of also because of its limitations to its local markets you know, have always kind of looked abroad for kind of further expansion commercially and culturally. So have you seen any kind of like similarities in terms of those two regions of the world, in terms of the way their industries are structured and how they kind of go about their kind of strategic outlook, if you will, for their artists? When you lift the hood on sort of what drives Korean music, it turns out that um, Korea has moved on to made in Korea phase where Korean music that was made in Korea somehow found traction and um, attraction in markets across Asia. Korea has evolved now into the made by Korea phase, where um, Korean music now is not necessarily produced exclusively in Korea or exclusively for Korea. If anything, it's made by Korea. And what I mean by that is... um, if you look at maybe the song credits or the liner notes of, or the metadata of a Korean song, very similar to a Hyundai car or a Samsung phone or an LG flat screen TV, 
Uh, these are products made by Korea in the sense that they're often assembled in different parts of the world with designers hailing from different parts of the world and more importantly, sold all over the world. Um, many of the songwriters and producers and composers are often from not just North America, but also more and more the norm is from Scandinavia, the Nordic countries that you mentioned, um, particularly Sweden. Uh, and then when it comes to, um, you know, choreographers or music video directors or whatnot, um, K-pop has become a very global product. And so what's really fascinating is, is that the four leading net export music markets, music markets that make more money overseas rather than in their local markets, there are four countries that can um, lay claim to that title or honor. It's the U.S., it's the U.K., it's Sweden, and it's Korea. Um, Sweden and Korea are very similar in the sense that Korean music industry and the Swedish music industry are likely going to generate more revenues outside of their home markets vis-a-vis um, -vis through overseas markets and, more importantly, overseas success. Also, Latin America is a region that comes to mind as well. There's the whole Latin explosion, at least to a lot of Americans in the 90s. But also given its international nature, the fact that there's so many different markets that are united, mostly with Spanish and one language, but of course there's Brazil as well. Do you see a similar dynamic going on or different for those reasons? And then also to tag on to that, uh, Jamaica. It's something you've brought up in the past and the success of reggae music, its cultural uh, relevance outside of its home market too. Latin America, I definitely see a lot of influence and inspiration. And so, you know, for a lot of people who just get, you know, really hyper excited about the success of K-pop and the Korean wave, you know, I have to remind them that um, this is not not unique, this is not exclusive, and frankly, it's not a first of non-English music breaking out and breaking through in the number one music market in the world, the U.S. Um, when I looked at and, more importantly, appreciated the success of Latin artists, like you said, in the 90s, um, you have to remember that the Ricky Martins and the Jennifer Lopez's and, you know, all the other artists, many of them got their first introduction into the American market um, because they weren't necessarily singers. Um, they were celebrities. Ricky Martin was an actor on a U.S. hit TV soap opera. I believe it was General Hospital or Days of Our Lives or one of those. So for a lot of Americans who fell in love with Ricky Martin, they like, oh, my goodness, that actor can sing. Or with Jennifer Lopez, you know, she was one of the original fly girls on In Living Color. And so she was known as a fantastic dancer and choreographer. Um, and so that is very similar and very true with a lot of the early K-pop stars who try to make headway in um, overseas markets. Because many of them are known as not only singers, but also as models and actors and actresses as well. And so this idea of coming in or coming into new markets as a triple threat as an artist, as a celebrity, and as a model, um, I think has some relevance because you never know how a particular star is going to break into the market. If they can, you know, come in with one element, great. If they can come in with three, even better. When it comes to Latin artists and Latin music, what do you think led them to their mainstream status today in a lot of English-speaking countries and, and non-Spanish-speaking countries? Um, so, yeah, Latin music, you know, I always found that um, what was really great about Latin music is they never lost their flavor. And that flavor often was the rhythm, the beats, but more importantly, the lyrics. They always made sure that although there was English, um, there was definitely a good dose of Spanish as well. 
And I always like to encourage Korean artists. And, you know, we see proof in concept as well as just in practice that um, a lot of K-pop, although it has elements um, and a healthy dose of English, it still retains its freshness and its flavor and its uniqueness by still incorporating Korean um, you know, not just for lyrical, linguistic, or for for meaningful reasons, but just because it flows well and, you know, um, it works. And so, you know, I often say that sometimes uh, K-pop 100% English might not work. If you can sing it better with a mix of English and Korean, go for it. Do it. And Jamaica? The last question, which was related to Jamaica, you know, I find the success of reggae which was really a tiny island phenomena that went global and still stays with us today is something that, um, you know, I think a lot of lessons can be learned for K-pop because let's face it, Korea is pretty tiny on the map. Um, how can people kind of conceptualize how big Korea is? And, you know, for those in Europe, Korea is only the size of Iceland in terms of landmass and size. Or for those in North America, it's about the size of maybe Florida or um, Cuba. But when it comes to population, for those in the North, in North America, um, imagine the entire West Coast of Oregon, Washington, and California. That's the population of Korea. And for those in Europe, uh, Korea is roughly the population of Spain. And when you put it in that context, you know, Korea it swings way above its weight. It packs a huge punch for a small country both in land size and in population, to have the impact that it's had. But there was a smaller country that had just as big of an impact back in the day, and that was Bob Marley, reggae, and Jamaica. And so um, I think it's great that uh, a country um, can export its culture with a unique music uh, style, genre, flavor. So you've mentioned before a, a quote-unquote hot city matrix. I think you said it maybe flippantly once before, but Seoul is kind of like a new city to be involved in in terms of like a cultural hotspot, where to look in the world for awesome culture. Do you see other cities along with Seoul being added to that you know, so-called list? Well, like within Korea, I mean, Seoul is very much the political, economic, cultural mecca of this country. Um, depending on whose stats you look to and listen to, the metropolitan Seoul, which includes Incheon, is one of, if not the biggest, mega metropolises in the world. Uh, we're talking anywhere between you know, 14 to 20 million people live in metropolitan Seoul and Incheon, uh, which is essentially almost half, one-third to half the population. Um, Obviously, there are a lot of other big cities in Korea, like Busan and Daegu and Daejeon. But for whatever reason, um, you know, if you're going to break in Korea, uh, Seoul is definitely a launch pad, if not the launch pad, to get out across and beyond Asia. Um, but that being said, you know, um, you know, I'm I'm not, you know, here to be a hype beast for Korea. Um, you know, I have to look at the numbers, look at the data, look at the. Uh, analytics and it turns out i mean credit where credit's due you guys can't coin the phrase trigger cities um and we see this in our monthly royalty accounting reports and we get this confirmed by digital agencies who work with tiktok influencers cities that most people would not even think of 
as being sort of the ground zeros and the hotbeds of what will make a song go viral, not just locally, regionally, but more importantly, globally. And those cities include um, those in the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, and of all places, uh, Mexico, Mexico City. And, you know, your sort of, uh, not even sort of, your very definitive pinpoints, uh, pin drops on what those trigger cities are, are confirmed uh, with us through multiple sources. And then, you know, more importantly, as I think that um, when it comes to, when I look at our monthly sales records, you know, originally people are very dismissive of the K-pop export potential. Like I always got, oh, it caters to an overseas Korean population or, hey, it crosses over to Asians. But that's not the case at all. When you look at, um, you know, analytics and, you know, you guys have made number crunching incredibly sexy. Uh, the reality is, is that, you know, K-pop has really crossed over. The go- Korean government, you know, they cite YouTube statistics where 90% of the YouTube views for K-pop music videos are from outside of Korea. 90%. So if not Korea, what markets are the biggest ones? And when you look at... Um, the biggest markets, I, I know for us with our agency, our biggest market's actually not Korea, it's not Japan, it's actually the U.S. And in our top five, you know, we see a mix of Canada, Australia, uh, and now more than ever, we see places like Indonesia rising very quickly. And for me, it's amazing because like we get royalty checks from Africa, the Middle East, Russia. And so um, it's really interesting to see. And, you know, more importantly is um, watching how Korean music has exported. What do you see as the main drivers of exporting Korean music globally? A lot of people ask, like, what makes Korean music travel so well? And I think it actually has to do with music videos um, because, you know, the traditional gatekeepers for breaking new music was radio, was magazines and was TV. But in this day and age of new media, social media, where viral is vital uh, to a marketing and promotional campaign, um, Korean music videos have just done absolute wonders in terms of um, spreading the word, spreading the love, spreading the message, spreading the music. Um, Because uh, I I mentioned this before in the Musical.ly interview, but I'll I'll say it again because I don't know how to say it better, but K-pop is is unique in the sense that it's um, music you can see with your ears and hear with your eyes. Not a lot gets lost in translation because whatever lyrically uh, doesn't make sense is often interpreted visually through the music videos or for that matter, it's translated lyrically because the global fans of K-pop are creating so much user-generated content where they're, you know, quickly translating and putting up subtitled lyric videos that um, anywhere in the world at any time, anybody can find a K-pop video in all likelihood, uh, customized, localized, and tailored to their individual tongue, tastes, and and uh, time zone. And so you don't really see that with a lot of maybe Western music videos or other Asian music videos. And... Uh, you know, the the subculture, the new culture that's evolved with K-pop and YouTube and TikTok and just essentially the video space um, has been a fascinating learning experience 
uh, every few months because whatever we thought worked, something new pops up and it, it reworks itself all over again. And so the power of videos is undeniable, but more importantly, how it's powered by the fans is is even more impressive. One of the dynamics that I found out about recently was this concept of the all kill when it comes to music charting in Korea. Uh, this is completely new to me. It is this idea of regular fans, not just necessarily industry people, so to speak. So, you know, not just business lingo, but this idea of there's a certain number, a handful of charts on the different streaming platforms. And when a certain song or a certain artist hits number one on all of them simultaneously, it's called an all kill. And there's only a handful of them for every year that passes by. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and how that became more of like a, a, a local phenomenon? Yeah, that's a great question, and um, you know, I'm going to give you um, some answers that you know. Feel free to uh, push this at your next cocktail party because um, the word "all kill," the phrase "all kill," actually did not come from the music scene or the music industry. Um, as big as K-pop is, esports, video gaming is even bigger. Um, of all the Korean pop culture exports video games is actually number one. It's something like, um, hold on, I have the data here, but it's basically 7.5 times bigger than music, TV, and movie exports combined. Esports and video games is hands down the number one export in Korea. And one of the biggest games in Korea um, was StarCraft. Guys, I mean, in Korea, when you turn pro as an athlete, it's not just sports, it's esports as well. And in many instances, esport athletes sometimes actually often make more money than regular sports athletes. And one of the most popular games, and they had pro leagues, they had 24-hour TV channels dedicated to this game called StarCraft. StarCraft was just, I mean, I, I worked at MTV ages ago, and it was embarrassing that these pro esports league channels were crushing MTV in the ratings. So I knew esports was big and it's obviously huge, it's massive. And one of the most awesome tactics that you can do as a StarCraft esports player is when you wipe out the entire competition on the screen. And that is called the all kill. <laughs> and in the same way, guys in PC rooms are just furiously clicking their, my, uh, their uh, mouses. You know, on StarCraft, I always often argue that um, fans, particularly fangirls, are crafting their stars vis-a-vis -vis through charts. Because as soon as a new single, a new album drops of their favorite artist, you have a lot of these fan clubs. And many of them happen to be, you know, um, girls. These, these fans, they're just furious on their computer and just clicking away with their mice. And so they're crafting their stars. And it's a competitive sport in its own right uh, to make sure that their favorite boy band or girl band charts high, have ideally all of their songs hit the top of the charts. But the most ultimate success barometer metric thing you can do is the all kill, where you just crush it and hit number one on all the charts across the board, just like StarCraft. Do you think... Korea's connected nature has anything to do with kind of like multimedia kind of influence on each other. Just I remember last time I was in Seoul being on the subway there and there were people playing like HD games on their phone while fully going through some tunnel, which as a New Yorker is hilarious to me because we don't have anything near that. 
does that have any kind of effect on the music industry or is that just kind of like a neat aside? Um, no, I think it, it definitely has an impact. As I mentioned before, this idea of cultural technology is not that oxymoronic. If anything, it makes a lot of sense. And again, as I mentioned before, this idea of digital culture, pop culture, and um, youth culture is really one and the same here in Korea. Um, and how that plays out just sort of as a case study of the making of a hit. As big as BTS and Blackpink are right now, and more importantly, last year, ironically, last year, the most streamed song, the number one song in Korea was not a K-pop song. It was not a K-pop act. It was a British artist named Anne Marie. Hmm. And she had a song called 2002. Now, 2002, you know, had a, has a lot of sort of emotional attachment for Koreans because that was the year that the Korean national football team, which in the U.S. you call soccer, had their miraculous semifinal run to the World Cup uh, that was co-hosted by Korea and Japan. But when you listen to the song, it has nothing to do with football, it has nothing to do with soccer. It's just, you know, a nice ballad. But that was streamed more than any other song in Korea last year, more than BTS, more than Blackpink, more than any boy band or girl band. So it begs the question, why, how? And it had to do with going viral. This was an artist who um, is very good at social media, but uh, she got a lot of traction on TikTok. And people discovered the song on YouTube, on TikTok, and on Instagram. And she came out to Korea last summer uh, to perform at a festival that was just an absolute train wreck. Before she was going on stage, it was like a typhoon. They're like, you can't go on stage. It's not safe. It's not safe. And so at the last minute, she didn't go on stage. You know, stuff was just flying around. And it was People were drenched, and she felt horrible that she came all this way to meet her fans and she couldn't perform. And so what looked like a disaster ended up becoming a massive PR bonanza because what she did was she tweeted and I think went on Instagram telling her fans, I'm so sorry, I can't go on stage, you know, I miss you, I love you, I, I don't know what to do. I have an idea. I'm going to play at the hotel lobby or club, you know, indoors where you guys won't get wet. And so impromptu, she did a performance like hours later after she couldn't go on stage outdoors. Place was packed. Her fans loved it. It was all over the news. And again, not just the newspapers, on the online news, the story went viral. They fell in love with her. And so what she made a disaster become, you know, a, um, a huge success story. And so she did some really unconventional stuff, but it was all fueled by social media and viral videos. And lo and behold, in the, the world of K-pop, the home of K-pop, the number one song last year was actually by a British singer named Anne-Marie. Were there any other unconventional breakout stories of Western artists in Korea? It's not just her. You know, um, Korea is dominated uh, by K-pop. Something like if you looked at the top 100 streaming songs last year, only maybe 10 were Western acts. And if you look at the top 200, I think at most it was 15 songs in the top 200 were from Western acts. But if you cherry pick who were the most successful Western acts, it were the, it, they were the ones that often were indie or relatively unknown in major markets. But one of the reasons why they hit it and hit it big in Korea was because of social media and viral videos. And, you know, um, 
I have to say that uh, TikTok is an undeniable hit maker. And if you want to break a new song in Korea, whether it's a K-pop song or a Western pop song, it's not a radio DJ. It's not a music television VJ. It's not a TV producer. Let me guess. Charlie D'Amelio. It's this dance studio called One Million Dance Studio. Mm, Tell us about that. The moment they make and create choreography to a song, that goes viral. People copy those moves, and then that goes on to TikTok and goes on to Instagram and goes on to YouTube, and it just takes a life of its own. And another hit song that sort of was the beneficiaries of this sort of virality was uh, Fits in the Tantrums. They had a song called Hand Clap. I mean, you can figure out what the song's about. It's about (laughs) clapping your hands, but oh my goodness. Um, The dance that they created and obviously incorporating the hand clap, um, it went viral. And I think, uh, you know, um, that song was a massive hit um, for for that band. And so, yeah, when you look at the top selling international artists in Korea, it's often not Justin Bieber or Ariana Grande or Taylor Swift. It's these interesting, quirky, quasi-indie artists um, who went viral. When did that happen with the Fits and the Tantrums? Oh, I think about maybe two years ago. Um, And uh, the dance video was really catchy. One Million Dance Studio, I mean, when they get behind a song and they put the choreography together, I mean, One Million Dance Studio is known to be the go-to choreographers for a lot of K-pop artists, K-pop videos. So, you know, One Million Dance Studio is like the platinum standard when it comes to K-pop dance moves that a lot of kids are always looking to copy. But on their own, when they got music playing in the background and they just go for it, man, those videos go viral. And, I mean, they rack up not just millions, but tens of millions, hundreds of millions of views. Um, Yeah, so in many ways, I think they've got more juice than DJs and VJs and producers now in terms of breaking songs. So an interesting aside is that that Anne-Marie track, so we're doing our next 6MO report, like our Mm -hmm. six-month semi-annual report, and um, that track came up as like one of the top posted tracks on TikTok. Yeah. Which was interesting to me. I mean, it's even more interesting hearing this context, but because it was released in in 2018, mm-hmm. and that uh, fits in the tantrum song was released in 2016, I think. So I'm wondering how how much does the South Korean market care about the sort of frontline catalog divide that you know the Western market is so full bore on? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think uh, in Korea, obviously, if there's a new song that's getting a push, it's going to get some attention and it'll likely get some traction. But if a song is good, irrespective of when it came out, once it catches on fire, it just goes off. And um, I think it was maybe not so much last year, but two years ago, like almost every song from Bohemian Rhapsody from Queen was stuck in the charts for months in Korea. And we know when those Queen songs were released. But, you know, if it has an emotional connection to the Korean audiences, um, those songs will not only chart, they'll just stay on the chart. And, uh, yeah, I just remembered um, Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody, when that movie came out. Like every Queen, I think the top 100 pop chart, I think like 20 of the songs were from Queen. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. 
Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com, and article links and show notes are at podcast.chartmetric.com. If you want more insights delivered to your inbox when we publish, subscribe to our blog at blog.chartmetric.com. As always, feel free to say hi to us on our socials as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for part two of our conversation with Bernie Cho.